This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I am thrilled to be sitting down with Dr. Stephen Smith. Dr. Stephen D. Smith is the Fincy Viterbi Executive Director of the USC Shoah Foundation and holds the UNESCO Chair on Genocide Education. Smith founded the UK Holocaust Center in Nottinghamshire, England, and co-founded the Aegis Trust for the Prevention of Crimes Against Humanity and Genocide. Smith has served as a producer on a number of film and new media projects, including Dimensions in Testimony and the VR project, The Last Goodbye. He also co-hosts the Memory Generation podcast alongside documentary storyteller Rachel Cerati, a show that explores dimensions of testimony from survivors of genocide. In recognition of his work, Smith has become a member of the Order of the British Empire and received the Interfaith Gold Medallion. He also holds two honorary doctorates and lectures widely on issues relating to the history and collective response to the Holocaust, genocide, and crimes against humanity. New Dimensions and Testimony is a collection of interactive video testimonies from the USC Shoah Foundation, enabling people to engage with Holocaust survivors and other witnesses to genocide by asking questions and conversing. The project uses a technology developed by USC's Institute for Creative Technology, or ICT, called Light Stage Technology, and records interviews with seven cameras for high fidelity playback, as well as natural language technology to create photorealistic virtual and dynamically interactive images that allow people to engage with the testimonies conversationally by asking questions that trigger relevant spoken responses. Based on original research led by Paul DeBevec at the University of California in Berkeley, light stage systems efficiently capture how a person's face appears when lit from every possible lighting direction on a stage. From this captured imagery, specialized algorithms create realistic virtual renditions of the actor in the illumination of any location or set, reproducing the color, texture, shine, shading, and translucency of the person's skin. ICT is also pioneering display technology that will enable the testimonies to be projected in 3D. The goal is to develop interactive 3D exhibits in which learners can have simulated educational conversations with survivors through the fourth dimension of time. Years from now, long after the last survivor has passed on, the new Dimensions in Testimony project can provide a path to enable young people to listen to a survivor and ask their own questions directly, encouraging them, each in their own way, to reflect on the deep and meaningful consequences of the Holocaust. The project also advances the age-old tradition of passing down lessons through oral storytelling, but with the latest technologies available, and brings up new and important questions about witness, technology, and what it means in our age of tech to pass down memory to future generations. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Deb. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm excited for this interview. So, Stephen, I wanted to bring you into this conversation on ethics and technology to talk about a particular question about the ethics of memory technologies. We have a whole language in the language of computing to talk about ethics, archives, drives, storage. But maybe before we get into the technological dimension of the question, we should first lay out some of the grounds for the conversation by talking a little bit about your particular area of expertise, which is Holocaust memory. What are some of the major questions that come up about Holocaust memory? Why is Holocaust memory such a significant concern? Well, I think, uh, Deb, the issue here that we face with Holocaust memory actually starts with the subject matter itself. When we collect memories of the Holocaust, we're not only just sort of collecting general memories about social history, we're talking about memories which themselves are difficult to share, traumatic events in their own right. The sharing of them can be traumatic in its own right. And when we take possession of those testimonies, it comes with an obligation. The obligation is not only to preserve the historical data, but what you're actually doing is you're preserving something about 
the person themselves. Because what I see Holocaust testimony is, is a giving of an individual's life to the archive in which we don't treat them just as objects, but we treat them as subjects in their own right. And so they rise to a sort of a higher level of ethical standards, because in some senses, when the survivor or the witness of the Holocaust speaks, they do not speak about a thing, they speak of themselves. And so I treat them as people, if you like. So that means that we have to be extremely careful with those memories and what the decisions we make about them. Now, the Shoah Foundation at USC, which is where you are, has one of the largest collections of Holocaust testimony in the world. Can you talk a little bit about the rationale for collecting this testimony? And what are some of the challenges in creating and maintaining this collection? So let's go back in time for a few moments to about 1994. In fact, we'll go to 1993. So Steven Spielberg, filmmaker, was on the set of Schindler's List. And as you're probably aware, when you make a movie, you don't make it in sequence. You film parts of it out of order. And so the first day of shooting of Schindler's List was at the scene at Auschwitz. So Steven Spielberg was on the set where they had recreated the scene of the train arrival at Auschwitz. There were dogs and there were lights and there were Nazis and there were, you know, everyone's, and there's cameras and there's lights. And of course, what happened was just after the Cold War, Holocaust survivors were turning up with their families to visit the place of their former incarceration to find a film set. So Steven Spielberg said, look, if Holocaust survivors are curious and they want to know, please bring them on the set and we'll, we'll explain what's happening. And one lady came on the set and she was talking to Mr. Spielberg and he was asking her about the setup and the dogs and the Nazis, whatever. And she said, Mr. Spielberg, stop. I don't want to talk to you about this one day in my life. I was a person before I was brought to Auschwitz and I was a person after I left Auschwitz. I want to tell you my whole story. So that evening he was contemplating that conversation and realized he was making a film about one individual. Oscar Schindler and what Oscar Schindler achieved, but that there were thousands and thousands and thousands of stories that were just as important and relevant that had never been told. So he said to his co-producer, Branko Lustig, also a survivor of Auschwitz, said, what would it be like to give the chance of every survivor that wants to tell their whole story? And so the Shoah Foundation was born. Steven Spielberg and the team set out to film 50,000 people. Now, Remember, this is the early 1990s. There had never been an oral history project anything like that scale. This was really the first very large crowdsourced oral history project in which testimonies were collected in 56 countries in 32 languages. And at the time, I was a PhD student and I was writing a PhD about testimony. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I would say that while that looks like an amazing project, it would be better to collect 5,000 testimonies conducted by oral historians than 50,000 testimonies collected by amateurs. Unlike a lot of PhD students, I could not have been more wrong. Because in fact, the genius of the archive is its scale. Yes, there were many people who had never taken an oral history before in their life sitting in front of people who were giving probably one of the most significant stories of their entire lives. But let me give you an example as to why this archive works so well. I was going to look at a small village in Poland where I wanted to do some research into what happened during the Holocaust. And so I searched in the Show Foundation's archive and I found 55 testimonies from that small town. And it enabled me to piece together the history of the Holocaust in that town. And then I went back to my former self as a PhD student and thought, oh, I wonder what would happen if I only searched in 5,000, not 55,000 testimonies. And guess what? I got five testimonies from that town because it's a tenth of the size. And so once you start to get big data like that, it means that the search will reflect what I was finding. And so with 5,000 testimonies, I could not put together the history of that town during the Holocaust. It was not enough data. So what we have here is a combination of people and their lives and the sharing of their lives with big data. Because now what we have is lots and lots and lots of data points that we can put together. So I'll end by saying when the Show Foundation collected these 55,000 testimonies, two promises were made. The first was that we would keep those testimonies in perpetuity. Second was that we would use the testimonies for the benefit of education. And that promise was made to the survivors and the witnesses that gave their testimony. So it turns out that perpetuity is a really, really long time and that the data on tape lasts about 20 years. And so we said, OK, let's digitize it. But it turns out digitization is not preservation. And we have this thing where we think of digitization. Oh, I've digitized it, therefore it's preserved. Actually, all you've done is moved your material onto another piece of material, which is also rotting and everything rots. So the question was, how do you keep 55,000 testimonies alive uh, forever? And so this is getting to the point of the ethics. The Show Foundation has an ethical principle. We don't lose a single pixel. That's it. That's the underpinning ethics 
of the Shoah Foundation, period. Why is that such an important ethic? If you treasure every single pixel and you put your effort and your intelligence and your technology at the service of every single pixel, then what happens is that ethic flows through the whole organization because what you're saying is every word matters. Every frame of video matters. And we are not going to lose that. And when you say that, you treasure it in a way that everything then flows from that because then the decisions you make about what storage you put it on or who you disseminate it to, who gets access to it, how it can be utilized in different platforms, all stems from that point of, is there any chance through what we're going to do that we will compromise the veracity of this wonderful treasure that we have down to the level of a pixel? And so that's how we govern the Share Foundation. You're bringing me right to my next question, which is, well, first a comment and then a question. The, the comment is that this is a series on ethics and technology. And of course, the ethic that you're proposing here, keep every single pixel, every single pixel matters, is contingent upon a relatively new phenomenon, which is that we have the technological capability to keep every single pixel. That has not been true for most of human history. Those who think about archives think about archives in terms of usually a state apparatus or the significant power apparatus, keeping things that matter to the state, keeping things that matter to the people in power people in positions of power, the idea that we could keep everything, even ephemera, as we tend to do on my computer, I won't say how many unopened emails I have in my Google inbox, is a relatively new phenomenon. And so I want to ask a question about the contingency of this project on technological capability. The collection and the use of testimony is contingent upon the creation of those very technologies, mass video recordings and tapings, internet access, archives, storage capacity for memory drives, I'm sure much more, one that comes to mind is that the ability for researchers to access that data and to make meaningful sense of it is also contingent on the ability to cull data in new ways or to use keywords or tags or things like that. So I'm wondering, how should we think about Holocaust memory and witness in relationship to technological production? Well, first of all, technology should always be in service of the content. So we get we get a little wowed by technology. Human beings are fascinated by it. And we think that the technology itself is the answer. And actually, generally speaking, it's not. The technology that we deploy should be in service of the outcome that we desire. So in fact, if you think about preserving memory, you can think about this in no-tech, low-tech, uh, and high-tech formats, right? So for example, converting the video to text, we lose a lot of information when we do that because we lose the facial features and the emotions that go with watching and hearing somebody. But we do preserve something of the content of that. So actually turning it into text is one of the solutions to make sure that you have a no-tech, if that's the right word for it, or very low-tech version of preserving the content. But then there are the, the higher-tech versions of this as well, where you say, okay, our baseline is if we're going to preserve every single pixel, we're going to create three copies of it, geolocate them in different continents, and we're going to operate those as separate backups of the archive. In the case of the Show Foundation, we check every single file every three months, and we don't trust a piece of data, like a tape, for example, or a drive, more than three years. So every three years, all of the technology gets changed, all of the data drives get changed, and every file is checked every three months. If we lose a pixel, basically if one one turns to a zero or a zero turns to a one, we know that because we have something called a SHA value. And a SHA value is an index. If the SHA value changes, it shows that there's been some data corruption. And then because we have these different backups in different places, we can then restore it back to its original form. So that's the baseline that we adopt, and we operate that on an ongoing basis. So what are the technologies of the future? Well, actually, one of them has a high-tech need. It's driven by a high-tech solution, but it's a low-tech storage method. That is, for example, using lasers to etch onto glass or onto a stone substrate. Um, these look like drives, but what it is, they're drives that don't deteriorate or the glass formats uh, you literally store them as cold storage offline. No requirement for the internet. Once they've been laser printed, you can stick them in a vault and you can then play that video back or restore it from that glass substrate 500 years from now. So that's that's a, a cold storage method. But then there are other methods that do require the internet. For example, the Show Foundation is now experimenting with blockchain. So we have a lab called the Starling Lab. It's a Show Foundation project that we've done with Stanford Engineering and USC teams and basically starling, you know, those little birds that fly in flocks, those birds, they all fly together and they create these amazing shapes in the air. 
So now imagine you take a file, it's a show of foundation testimony, and you chop that file up into thousands of little pieces, and then you submit that to the blockchain. Like a flock of birds, those files then get disseminated onto the decentralized web where they are preserved. And like a cryptocurrency, only the person with the key to the testimony can reconfigure that flock of birds back to a single file. So we are now at the point at which we're starting to store our testimonies on blockchain because they are encrypted in a way that the encryption can't be broken. So we're trying all sorts of different methodologies and keep an eye out for DNA. 10 years from now, we'll probably be printing our files onto DNA because DNA can contain millions and more billions of um, you know bytes of data. And you can literally imagine that data storage 10 years from now will be biology <laughs> as much as it, as it is technology. So uh, biotechnology. So there's lots of formats for data storage and memory that will preserve this content long into the future, just up ahead. I mean, this is interesting. We've talked a little bit about data storage and preservation, but of course, data storage and preservation without anything animating it into usage is relatively inert. Those of us who think about memory think about, on the one hand, the collection, maintenance, preservation as something that needs to be in service of utility. So the question that I have is, what about the changes to scholarship or changes to thinking about Holocaust memory that happened with technology. Do you see that these new technological abilities or technological innovations have changed the way that people are thinking about Holocaust memory, the kinds of questions that people are asking about Holocaust memory, the types of things that researchers are finding in Holocaust memory? So uh, 10 years ago, Deb, if I'd gone to a Holocaust scholars conference, I would not have expected to hear the archive of USC Shoah Foundation being quoted on panels and in papers. And the reason is the archive was not that accessible. And so scholars weren't utilizing testimony in their scholarship partly because of access, but also because at the time there was some doubts about whether testimony was a historical source or a source that could be trusted in the context of scholarship. So there has been a dramatic change in that in, in the last 10 years, and there's, there's several reasons for it. The first is, to your point, it's not just about the data. The key thing about these archives is metadata. And it's an, an underused term that you mentioned a few moments ago in, in relationship to tags or keywords that is the real power engine of uh, how we use our archives. The more metadata there is, the more we can navigate that content and get access to it in ways that can help us to research and learn more. And so the show foundation chopped up, it's now 115,000 hours of material, which just to give you context would take about 14 years to watch 24 hours a day into one minute segments. Every single minute was keyworded. And so those keywords allow you to navigate. So I can go from 55,000 testimonies, like the example I gave a few minutes ago, down to 55. And those 55 can give me access to that content. This week I taught a class at the Annenberg School at the University of Southern California on the Olympics. It was for a class that's uh, looking at public relations around the Olympics. And I focused specifically on the Berlin Olympics of 1936. So I was able to very quickly use that metadata to narrow me down to 215 instances where within the minute, the witnesses talked about going to the Olympics, seeing the Olympics, being at the Olympics, participating, whatever it was they were doing, and enabled me then to teach that class using just 20 clips out of the 55,000 testimonies. And it took me about four hours to prepare that. What I did in the process though, was I learned a great deal about the Berlin Olympics as a Holocaust historian, but I had never ever contemplated before. Because what testimony does, it gives you the inside out view of the history rather than the outside in. And we're used to viewing history from the outside in. We take documents and sources that are usually third party and external to the experience. For example, let's take the event of Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, which is actually more properly called the November pogrom. It took place in November 1938. And it got termed Kristallnacht because from the outside in, when you looked at that event, because of the broken glass that was all across the streets where the Jewish shops and homes were, that had their windows smashed, you saw that from the outside in as being broken glass. But when you look at testimonies, it would have probably been called the Night of the Feathers. Why? Because when you listen to the survivors, what they say is when the Nazis came into their homes, they went to their beds and they 
slashed their duvets because they were looking and they were looting and these houses were covered with feathers on the inside. What you also learn is that the individuals who from the outside you think are cowering to these Nazis, you find grandma inside the house pinning some Nazi to the wall and saying, don't you dare touch my granddaughter and get out of my house. So you don't see that from the outside as reported by the world, but as reported by those who lived it, you see a much more resilient form of humanity. That's what I discovered this weekend on the Olympics. As I used the metadata to mine what was happening in July and August of 1936, I found this resilience of these Jews living in Berlin who were actually living through that experience and were able to report it from a very different angle to the one that I had seen from the outside. So that's how the power of testimony and metadata in particular, Deb, can allow us to then get deeper in. Final point. You go to a Holocaust conference today, anywhere in the world, you will, will not go to a single panel where you don't find the USC Shoah Foundation's archive being quoted. And the reason for that is distribution. There are 175 university sites around the world today where we have partnerships with those universities where all of the faculty and scholars get access to that archive. And when you get access to it and you have the power of metadata, then you can go and treat it as a real source of historical information and insight alongside all the other sources that we have, whether we are coming at it from history or social science or ethnomusicology or medicine or public health. However, these scholars are approaching it. Now that material is available to them to Put alongside all of their other sources. Well, Stephen, you know, it's interesting because uh, one of the other disciplines is literature, which is, <laughs> which is mine, where we think about testimony quite a bit. And in, in literature, we also think about testimony among the many other things that you talked about as, as stories. And there's a big debate in literary studies right now about how we read and interpret stories. One of those debates says that now that we have these new technological capabilities for looking at stories en masse through data, through point-to-point -point analytics, we ought to be doing what's called distant reading, which is looking across thousands or hundreds of thousands of texts to find common nodes. Another theory in literary studies called close reading actually wants to resist that kind of metadata analysis by way of kind of making an ethical claim, which is that as coherent stories that are circumscribed and, in a sense, realized through their wholeness as stories, as individual stories told about individual people, the attempt to read them as pieces of data in a broad mass data structure actually might do a kind of violence to those forms of stories. Now, as a literary scholar, I teach both distant and close reading. I find distant reading a really exciting new mode of yielding new answers and asking new questions. But I take seriously the ethical claim by those who object to that kind of reading that, in a sense, treating stories as data rather than individual coherent stories might obscure things about those individual stories and might actually be treating these stories not in the ethical principle of individuality that you proposed from the get-go, but rather as data that does not take into account the individual behind it. How would you respond to that? I think that close and distant reading are not in competition with each other. I think they're in tension, but I think they're also complementary and they're not mutually exclusive. Let me tell you how I think about this. I think there is an ethical component to this too. There was a Jewish philosopher by the name of Martin Buber who came up with the idea of I, thou, rather than I, it, when talking about encounter with God or encounter generally. So the way in which I think about this is I read testimony not as an object to analyze, but as an encounter with the story and the life of the individual. So when you put it into that context, what, what you have is, if you imagine the witness of the Holocaust externally has a persona, we witness them as an individual that has gone through atrocity, has survived that. And there, there's something of a phenomenon, actually. And so when they speak, we hang on every word. And in that moment, there is this sort of coming together of the individual who's sharing through their persona and us listening and engaging with them. But on the inside of that persona is the individual, the person that lives with memory every day, who doesn't put it into a story, who doesn't narrativize it, and just lives with the trauma and the reality of the trauma daily. So it's actually that individual that I really want to know. 
because the story is just the shell. It's the words that we wrap around that experience, which are just a representation of that person's life. The question is, who is that person and what can I learn from them as an individual? So the way I propose going about this, which is, is sort of an ethical approach to this, is if you approach the testimony as the individual, not as the persona, in other words, as a desire to understand who's behind the words and what they're sharing from their lives, you can go deeper. You will learn more from those words, actually, because what happens is you don't just take them on face value. You take them on the understanding that they are communicating something to you through those words. I'll give you a little story. So I was going to school with a lady called Victoria Vincent. She was in a wheelchair and she needed help. She was an Auschwitz survivor. And so I would take her. I would introduce her. She would get up and she would tell her story and she would then take questions. And I noticed she always cried at exactly the same moment in her testimony. That's interesting. So one day in the car, I said to her, Vicky, I just want you to explain to me, you've been on the train, you've seen people die, you've watched the gas chambers, you've had dysentery and typhus, you've been beaten, you know, within an inch of death, no tears. So why do you cry at the moment when you're just getting towards the end and there's perhaps some hope that you're about to survive? She said, well, it's very simple. I'm telling the story of standing on the parade ground where they counted the inmates, watching two girls being hanged. The two girls who were being hanged had helped to smuggle gunpowder into Auschwitz to blow up a gas chamber. She said, and I'm standing in a row of five girls. And as you know, I just found my own sister, Olga, in Auschwitz after we've been separated for nine months. And there she is, and she's standing next to me in the row of five girls. And next to her is the sister of one of the girls that's being hanged. I'm thinking, well, I can't survive without Olga, but this girl's gonna have to survive without her sister. Because secondly, this girl had blown up a gas chamber. <laughs> so there she's a heroine. Meanwhile, she's, I'm standing there with my little glasses on and they're hanging on with a piece of thread. And if I lose my glasses in the mud, I'm dead by nightfall because I literally am blind without my glasses. And I'm thinking, step forward, offer to change places with her. But I couldn't put my one foot in front of the other because I just wanted to live another day. And she said, and the third thing was, there was a Christmas tree right near the gallows because the SS had put a Christmas tree up in the, in the parade ground. I'm thinking, how dare you? She said, the combination of those three emotions, the guilt and the helplessness and the Christmas tree and the anger, it just falls out and I just can't help it. I cry. I said, OK, just do me a favor. Go back to the beginning of your testimony, will you? And just tell me, why do you tell each episode that you tell in what I thought was a life history? Turns out it wasn't a life history at all. It was a series of short stories, each of which had their own internal meaning to them, which is not explicit as it wasn't when she told the story of the girls hanging, but was implicit in the text. And it was about family and hope and courage and resilience and all sorts of themes. And she'd never mentioned those terms when telling the story. And that's when I realized that these life histories are not histories at all. They are lives and they are a way for us to get into and understand the complexity of that history, um, not as history, but as lives that have been lived that have consequence. And so that's why I've spent the last 25 years trying to understand not what is the text, but what's behind the text. But just to be a little bit combative here, because I think that this is a very meaningful story, what you just said is that they're meaningful as stories and that they're meaningful in stories in their own inner coherence as stories with themes and with sub-themes and with symbols that can only be understood if you know the stories in totality. Wouldn't looking at data points across thousands or hundreds of thousands of data points in multiplicities of stories independent of those larger coherences and themes actually obscure some of those larger themes and symbols that can only be understood, as you've said, through the inner coherence of the story as a whole? Depends what you're looking for. So what I learned, for example, about the Olympics this week by having multiple data sources, which I could not have got from a single one, two things I learned. First of all, the Jews saw when the Nazis took down these signs in Berlin, when all the international community came up and they took away the Jews, don't, don't buy from Jews and the, the benches and all the rest of it. They saw the pressure that the international community put on Germany and the fact that Germany then gave them a reprieve for six weeks. They saw it as a turning point and began to hope that things would be better. I did not know that until I had multiple sources that confirmed they were all thinking the same thing. It's a reprieve, only to find out it wasn't. So I learned something about their state of mind during that period. And I learned something about advocacy. Advocacy worked because the international community said to Germany, we're not coming if you're going to be anti-Semitic. 
and the Germans being the way they were, said, okay, fine, we'll take everything down. They had no intention of pursuing that thereafter. But interestingly enough, the international community was also duped into believing that what they saw was real, that there wasn't anti-Semitism there. And so they let their guard down and they went away and they didn't keep the pressure up. And immediately left, the Jews felt it. And they reported that, that they felt the pressure come straight back because the international community really was only there for the fun of the games and they weren't really serious about what was happening to the Jews. And then that's where they felt completely abandoned. The second thing I learned from them, which I could only have got through multiple data points, is these kids that got thrown out of their own sporting clubs because they weren't allowed to be there because they were Jews, joined a club called Bar Kokhba Hakoch. Bar Kokhba was the revolutionary in the beginning of the second century CE who was you know, involved in the Masada episode and so forth. A guy of resistance and resilience who held up, you know, and, and, and saved the Jewish people. Bar Kokhba Hakoach was a new sporting club that was set up in order to teach these Jewish kids that were getting beat up on the streets and thrown out of their own sporting clubs how to protect themselves. And so I never knew this, but I needed multiple data points for me to find out, hang on a minute, all these 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds from 1936 are talking about how important it was that they had somebody teaching them how to defend themselves against this beast that was right on top of them, National Socialism, so the next time they get beaten up in the street, they know how to protect themselves. I couldn't have got this without multiple data points enabling me to get into that story and see it from that way. Let's talk about a somewhat new technology of Holocaust memory, which is the New Dimensions in Holocaust Testimony project unveiled in 2017. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, so actually it goes back to around about 2000 and nine, actually. So the, the, the concept developer, Heather Mayo, was filming Holocaust survivors one day for an exhibition project. And she was sitting in the kitchen talking to one of the Holocaust survivors, having just filmed them for this project. And she realized that the conversation she was having in the kitchen was a completely different dimension of testimony and conversation to the one that she'd had where they were formally presenting their story on camera. And she also realized that her grandchildren would never have the benefit of that conversation she was having. As she thought about it, she thought, hang on, all these Holocaust survivors survivors are going into schools and colleges and universities and we're having this dynamic by which they present their story and then converse but we haven't captured the conversation so as an exhibition designer she thought maybe there's a way to capture them in a way that you could actually be really present and narrow the distance and preserve the conversation remember this is before FaceTime before Siri before all of the things that we use every day where we're used to seeing each other facially and using voice recognition and natural language processing so she talked to me I was you know, director of the USC Shoah Foundation and she felt that while she could do that as an independent producer, that it belonged with an organization like the Shoah Foundation. So we put a partnership together with her and an organization called the Institute of Creative Technologies. It's a multimedia lab at University of Southern California. And so the three entities worked for about four years in a research project to say, what would it be like to be able to create a conversational testimony? And so we worked with a Holocaust survivor, Pinkas Gutter, who is a very good friend of mine and a remarkable witness of the Holocaust, but also a tremendous educator. And we worked with Pinkhurst to try and find a way to tell his story by asking him hundreds of questions and seeing whether we could put those questions into a database and then use voice recognition software to find answers to questions that are commonly asked. And we tested that and it worked rather well. And so we started then a production of multiple Holocaust survivors. And at this point, we have interviewed 50 Holocaust survivors worldwide in English and Spanish and French and German and Hebrew. Even in Mandarin, we interviewed a survivor of the Nanjing massacre in order to create interactive biographies, as we call them, which is a way to navigate testimony by asking questions and getting answers from the witnesses. When I first encountered the New Dimensions project at the LA Museum of the Holocaust or the LA Moth, the term that was informally floating around for the project called it the Holocaust Holograms Memory Project. If you search for the project online, which I did in preparation for this interview, your best bet to find information about the project is to use search terms exactly like that. Holocaust holograms. Are these holograms? Is hologram the right term? It's so fascinating, by the way, that that is the case, because we have never used the word hologram in our in anything that we've ever put out about this project ever. So it shows you actually the power of the way in which society can shape the way in which we think about the past, because basically that search term has floated to the top because people have used it over and over and over again. And the Google search algorithm goes, oh, okay, well, if you're using that, it must be relevant. I will now register that as being 
being the best way to find this project, even though the project itself doesn't describe itself as Holocaust holograms and never has. So no, they're not holograms. And in fact, the premise from an ethical perspective is I'm going to push back really strongly on this. These are testimonies. When we began the project, Deb, what we did, we sat in a room together and said, okay, let's just talk about whether we really need to do this and what technology we might want. So we said, okay, what's the very lowest no tech, low tech version of this we could do. So, okay, let's use flashcards. I'm going to write a question down and I'm going to hold it up. And it's going to say, which concentration camp were you in? And the Holocaust survivor is going to write the answer and hold it up. I've got the content. I asked the question and I got the answer. That's the basis of the content. I'm going to tell you in a written form what the seven concentration camps are that I was in. Don't need any technology for that. And I've got my answer. So let's just say we did that in audio and enhanced that by getting the emotional inflection and intonation of the individual describing what those seven concentration camps were. I've now laid on a form of technology, it's audio recording, and I've got more tonality now. I've got more emotion in it now. Let's amp it up. Let's put a single camera on this and let's treat this like a, a Q&A using a single camera. And I'm just going to film you answering those questions and then I'm not going to use any search capabilities. I'm just going to play back the clip and he's going to tell me on camera what the seven concentration camps were. Now I can see his face. I can see his eyes. I can see how he looks when he describes those seven concentration camps. So video is in service of me understanding more about it because now I can see what we call his physiognomy, his facial features. So then what happens if I put 10 cameras around him? So now I can see the entire person. And now, even if I can't put it on a projector right now, when I speak to you at the moment, uh, we're looking at each other through a flat screen. But if I speak to you in person, I get a sense of your three-dimensionality. So what happens if we capture that? Well, actually, it does tell us more about the person as well, because now I can fully embody the individual. And now I'm not just doing head and shoulders. I'm doing the entire body because the body speaks as well. And the sense of embodiment when you walk into the room and we get to meet each other not on kind of this Zoom business, I will understand you in a different way to the way I understand you on Zoom because I am feeling your presence in a way and I'm seeing the entire scale of you. So that adds some information too. And so we decided that we would film the Holocaust survivors using multiple cameras to collect what one might describe as a hologram. But that is the last iteration of this content. In fact, it's not even needed for us to be able to understand what is being said and conveyed to us. That's why we push back on the hologram thing. Second reason we push back on the hologram thing is it isn't a hologram. A hologram is a very specific technical scientific term and we didn't we haven't filmed them as holograms. What we have done is we filmed them using what we call volumetric capture. That is where you use multiple cameras. And these days we also use something called a depth sensor as well. And a depth sensor allows us to create the shell of the person that's moving and then apply the image to the outside of it. It's a new technology. We are not actually recreating anything. We are just capturing testimony. And the reason we have this sort of Holocaust hologram misnomer that's going around is because we have in our vocabulary a very very superficial reading of technology. We are fascinated by avatars and bots and, you know, games in which we create versions of ourselves and go around shooting people up or driving cars or whatever, in which we take on the persona of an avatar of a human being. And it's assumed that these are avatars. They are not. They're just simply video. And just in the same way that we have video that is linear, that goes from I start at the beginning of my life and I talk and I talk for two and a half hours and I end at the end of my life. In this case, it's not linear. What it is, it's a series of answers to questions that you might ask somebody. They are then stored in a database and the voice activation is just actually searching that database and bringing back the query that you would be looking for. Final thing I'll say about this is that a typical show foundation testimony is two hours and 18 minutes long. A testimony in the Dimensions and Testimony project is typically 18 to 20 hours long. We have very, very much more data, many more stories, much more detail, much more reflection. And so it becomes even more impossible for you to listen to 18 hours of video. But what it will do, it will dive into that 18 hours of material and find an answer to the thing that's most on your mind. And from an educational perspective, nothing beats curiosity to try and get an answer to a question that you have on your mind to enable you to navigate an otherwise extremely complex database. You know, to go back to something you said at the beginning of your answer to that question, one of the reasons I think that 
people may use the term Holocaust hologram to search for this project or when thinking about the project is that it's not the first time that this technology has been used to preserve people or memories. There's the famous Tupac hologram, which premiered at the Coachella Music Festival in 2012, where the late rapper Tupac Shakur appeared as an image in an interactive, I'll use the incorrect term, hologram, who appeared to rap in a performance with Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre. And as one Washington Post article put it, in recent years, the author of that article had seen advertisements for tours featuring Ray Orbison, Frank Zappa, Amy Winehouse, the classical pianist Glenn Gould, Maria Callas, Buddy Holiday, Whitney Houston, heavy metal belter Ronnie James Dio. All of these performers have one defining commonality. They are all dead and they are all performing. The author of the Washington Post article wondered, and I'm going to quote the article here, was it really okay to let holograms or these technologies that we were calling for the purpose of this interview, holograms, stand in for those who cannot be there. Was this new phenomenon an inevitable development in the interweaving of high-tech and art? Or did it possibly speak to something darker about our 21st century morals and our endless quest to be entertained? What does this phenomenon say about, well, us? How do you think about that question in the context of Holocaust testimony? Well, I think the word keyword there is entertainment. Depends what the purpose is. So those individuals that you mentioned in their lifetimes were entertainers. It was their art. It was their talent. And most of these artists, alive or dead, have their digital image and their embodiment and their body of work and their recordings and all the rest of it, which get handed on to their estates. And their estates continue after they're gone to exploit their image for the purpose of their heirs. And so there is a, particularly now that we're getting to this age of digital imagery, clearly defined contract between the artist and their heirs that they can exploit their image for the purpose of entertainment because it puts money into their trust, which actually feeds their grandchildren. So what they're doing is quite consciously continuing their career after they're gone. Now, these new forms of visual embodiment and visualization are just an extension of that. So I think in the entertainment area, I think it's down to the art artist and or their heirs to make those decisions. And if they don't think it fits their ethics, they won't. And if they think it does, they will. And I think we can't be the sort of the arbiters of that on behalf of individuals and their estates. What's curious, though, is that there is an audience for this to go here and or see some of these characters uh, performing after their deaths. I see it more of a celebration of their art, honestly. I just think that they were artists in their lifetime and if people still appreciate their art and there is the ability to create that in a way which is authorized and isn't some kind of deep fake misrepresentation of them, then I think it's technology that's fair game to use. I would say that in terms of Holocaust survivors, that would be a misuse of their testimony and of their lives. I think it would not represent them and one of the things that the show foundation has done for example in its engagement with holocaust survivors we have made a stipulation that we will not change their words even though we can very easily by the way we will not manipulate their image even though we can very easily and that we will allow their entire answer to every question to be answered in full without editing without changing it without any form of digital intervention and so that's the ethic that we applied to that project but i think that would be different if i was doing a recreation of elvis to go into the museum uh, graceland for example uh, where it would be down to the curators of that museum to say how do they want their talent to appear in that particular exhibit based on what they would like him to say or do or sing or whatever in that uh, exhibit. So I think each project needs to be governed by its own policies. That's how I would see it. Is there something specific about Holocaust memory that makes the idea of a proxy living witness in this particular form particularly important? Something that other forms or technologies of memory recordings written testimony video can't do? Well, I think the way I've gone about thinking about this, Deb, is what are the ways in which I would anticipate in the future others might want to learn from the lives and the experiences and the stories that Holocaust survivors share? So Dimensions in Testimony is just one of several technology-based methodologies that I've been involved in developing with the Shoah Foundation. I was the producer of something called The Last Goodbye, which is a virtual reality project. And I don't see the term virtual 
virtual reality in a negative connotation at all. I see it as being able to actually take you into a space that you otherwise may never experience with somebody that you may never otherwise meet and hear their testimony in that space, understanding their testimony in the context of that space. And in the context of The Last Goodbye, I took the same Holocaust survivor, Pinkus Gutter, to the death camp Maidanik, and we walked through that camp and filmed it in a way that you could actually stand in the barracks with him hearing about how he was separated from his father at the spot where he was separated from his father. So what we're doing again is we're creating more immediacy and technology then is serving the ability for us to then experience what it's like for Pinchas to stand at that spot and tell that story. And I can tell you he tells it in a completely different way when he's standing in the death camp to when he's sitting in his armchair in Toronto where he lives telling the exactly the same story. So that's one technology. Another one is one called iWalks. And this is where we use the location of the very various camps and ghettos and so forth. And we connect the testimonies to the location that they are talking about so that you can stand in the Warsaw ghetto with your app and then you can bring up the testimonies that talk about the place that you're standing or you go to Auschwitz or you go to Bergen-Belsen and they populate your app based on the fact that these are the stories that relate to the place that you're in. And we're very used to using geographically oriented geodata these days to navigate our world. And that's another way of doing it. What we also did, we took survivors to those locations and filmed them in the location in 360, which means you can stand in that location, listening to a Holocaust survivor talking about that location, filmed in that location, and also seeing the entire surroundings that you're in, which you don't need to see when you're standing there. But if you're in a classroom in, I don't know, Virginia, and you're never going to go to Auschwitz, you can still actually experience being at that site by just saying, I'm now looking at this map of Auschwitz and I can see there are 25 testimonies on this map that can help me understand that location and you see them in the location in 360. The final technology I'm just developing right now is an augmented reality technology. Augmented reality is where you can place an object into a space and see that object spatially. So I'll keep this scenario going with Pinkas Gutter. I take his 18 hours of testimony that he gave for Dimensions of Testimony and from that I find what I think are the 50 key things that he talks about in relationship to his testimony. And now what I do, I ask him to tell me those short stories as short stories, as episodes. So now what you have is 50 short episodes. Now what happens is you place those testimonies in a museum about the Holocaust so that when you go to the US Holocaust Museum or to the Museum of the Holocaust LA, when you're in the section that's talking about Kristallnacht, you actually have in front of you using your wearable devices, which look like you know glasses, or maybe your tablet or phone, you see Pinchas Gutter or one of the other Holocaust survivors standing in front of you in that museum telling you the story of what happened on that day. Uh, and so they're like virtual docents that are standing there life-size, embodied in 3D, and they are then embedding the stories into the museum itself so that you can navigate that museum through their stories and understand what's on the wall through what they share. The Virtual Holocaust Survivor Project and all of these endeavors, I think, have on some level been promoted as an endeavor that will allow the stories of Holocaust survivors to live on. It's a project that responds to a concern that I encounter frequently, especially now as we approach a time when we are not going to have Holocaust survivors able to share their memory live. Are virtual Holocaust survivors really a good proxy for this? What do you think? Well, I don't know what we mean by the term virtual Holocaust survivors. I think what's happened is, Deb, we have got used to the medium of video. We understand it. It's in our lives every single day. We consume video on YouTube. We consume it on our, our news. We consume it on our Facebook channels. We're used to video. So when, when we film a Holocaust survivor on video, we don't call it a virtual Holocaust survivor project. We just say we filmed the testimony. So I just see these extensions using newer forms of technology as a form of testimony, and they are not virtualizing anything. We could, and some people have tried, and they might in future create avatars and virtual versions, if you like, of agents that they say are Holocaust survivors and are created from some form of digital creation. That's not what we're doing. We're capturing testimony in different forms. That's all. And we are visualizing that in different ways that are new, and we're not used to all of those forms formats yet. But the ethic that we apply at the Shoah Foundation is 
making sure that we create and collect authentic video. For example, the Augmented Reality Project, which we talked about a moment ago. We're going to script that. And the reason we're going to script it is because when you're walking around a museum, you don't have five minutes to listen to the long version of how I arrived at Auschwitz. But we script it 100% from the words that they said. So what you actually end up with is a shorter version of the story that they said in a form that they can meander off it and meander back to it. It's entirely their words. All the words that are scripted are their original words. So for example, when you go to the film La La, it's an animated virtual reality film about La La the dog. It's the story told by Roman Kent, who has recently passed away in a blessed memory, who used to tell the story of his dog, La La, who found him as a child, got through the ghetto fence and re found the children that originally owned this dog. Beautiful story. And his story is, love is stronger than hate. The Nazis put the fence there, but the dog didn't see the fence. He just wanted to get to the children that it loved. Beautiful story for children. Roman told that story sitting on his couch in his home, in his apartment. And we helped him by taking the story that he told in his testimony and providing that as a script to him so that he knew exactly what he wanted to say. But it is 100% in his own words. And so that's where we would draw the line and say, okay, it has to always be the authentic voice of the authentic individual, which is why there is a race against time, Deb, because obviously nearly all of our witnesses are in their 90s at this point. And we don't have that much longer to to do this work. You know, years ago when I was teaching a course on memory at UCLA, I brought the New Dimensions project in for my students and they had a chance to interact with two Holocaust survivors through this virtual medium whose testimonies had been recorded for the project. One was Pinchas Guter, the other was Eva Schloss. And what I learned in the demo was that the technologies actually have, or at least at the time, had a few hiccups. They might stall due to an unstable internet connection or they might get stuck when recognizing a question since voice recognition recognition software can sometimes misunderstand accents or words or direct a virtual survivor providing testimony to answer an unrelated question. I have a really strong memory of one of my students experiencing this kind of technological stutter that appeared at least to us in the audience as the virtual Holocaust survivor stuttering, although we on some level knew it was a technological stutter. The production and the presentation makes it seem as though it's a virtual Holocaust survivor themselves stuttering. The student asked a virtual Eva Schloss a question and the technology said back, I don't remember that. The student then turned to me and said, it's just like talking to my grandmother, by which I took the student to mean that the technology wasn't working right. And that seemed to her like the kind of mishaps that her grandmother's memory tended to experience. I found the comment so interesting because on the one hand, we call our technologies things like memory. Uh, and under those terms, which originally referred to human qualities, we now use them to refer to technological qualities. But here the technologies weren't reproducing human qualities. It was a implied human, in this case, the technology, who was seen to behave like a machine. The student's grandmother was considered to behave like a machine, which brought up a question for me. Do you think that audiences experience these virtual Holocaust witnesses as people or as machines, as both, as neither, as somewhere in between? What a great question. I think it depends on the audience member. I remember when we very first did the very first trial with Dimensions in Testimony, and we were in the Holocaust Museum, LA, and in a little anteroom. And what we were doing, basically, we had it set up before we were using the voice recognition, what we wanted to do was hear what were the questions that a member of the public would typically ask. And so as people walked around the museum, we'd say, hey, would you like to come and see a new exhibit? We just uh, we haven't unveiled it yet, but we'd love you to come and give us some feedback. And they, they would sit down and there was just, just a laptop screen and this Holocaust survivor was on there, you know, just six inches tall, not the full life-size ones that we do these days. And they would ask a question and then be, literally behind the curtain, the technologists were listening to the question, finding the answer and then pushing the button to answer it because we were trying to see, did we have the answers to the things that the public were asking. One lady came in, she was a housekeeper for a Holocaust survivor, Latino. She came with her two daughters and she wanted them to come to the museum so that they would understand the lady that she worked for and what her experience was. And I thought, what a great mom. She's actually educating her children to understand the lady who's got the number on her arm that they would see. So she sits there, she was Spanish speaking, not great English. Her two kids grown up in LA, of course, one was like 12 and one was about seven or eight, whatever. And of course they started asking questions straight away. She, 
watched her children engaging with this interactive conversation and then completely suspending disbelief said thank you to the Holocaust survivor on the screen for sharing such precious things with her children and for giving them a chance to understand his memories. And I realized at that point she'd completely forgotten it was a machine and that she was talking to the person and giving her gratitude to the person. That led me to believe that there would be different types of audience members who would see it in different ways. It is just a machine. The actual answers are not machine driven. They are the answers given by the Holocaust survivor and they are the authentic answers. The machinery is the, and the, the AI component of this is not that we, they are, we have created an AI which is thinking for itself. What we're doing, we're using artificial intelligence to try and find the best answer to the question that you answer. And what it does behind the scenes, it scores itself. So if I ask, what is your name? And you say, my name is Deb. I'm going to score myself at 100% because I know that that's the correct answer for the question that was answered. But if I ask you a more detailed question about, you know, what is the idea behind your podcast? It's going to probably have several ways in which it can think about, well, is this the right answer or is that the right answer? And it scores it based on what it thinks is the right answer. And what happens is then human beings at this, the show foundation team, look at those scores and see if we can actually help the machine to give better answers next time. And what you need for that is tens of thousands of people to use it. And so thank you, Deb, for bringing it to your classroom all those years ago, because your students have probably enabled that to be a better experience for people today. We are not trying to replace the human being. We are not trying to suspend disbelief. We're just trying to provide a way for the average person to ask a simple question to a very complex issue and be able to feel connection to that in a deeper way than they might otherwise do watching a video on YouTube. So it's just a different form of accessing the same stories. You know, the story that you told about the mother who said thank you to the virtual reality screen in front of her brings up another question for me about the implications or some of the consequences, perhaps unforeseen, but very real potentially about the use of virtual reality and thinking about a Holocaust memory, because I can't help think about an age that we are in right now, a technological age where the words virtual reality and reality seem deeply enmeshed in one another. This is something that I think the story that you talk about brings up, that oftentimes we think about virtual reality and reality as interchangeable with one another. Sure, one theory might be that virtual witness in the context of Holocaust memory might help maintain the sense that this past is living, as this story seems to suggest, and that in the context of Holocaust memory, this might enhance or help maintain the sense that the past is living and might establish its reality, which I think is an ethical claim. But couldn't it also destabilize the reality of the past? And that, that's to say, really, if we have framed virtual reality as, in a sense, and I think many of us do cognitively as a fiction, couldn't these figures provide an easy conduit for, say, Holocaust deniers or others in more benign ways to frame or understand the Holocaust itself as fictional, even if it is not intentional or malicious in the context as it is in the context of Holocaust denial? I guess my concern here is that virtual reality is, by definition, that which is not real. Is there a danger that by putting Holocaust memory in the frame of that kind of simulacra, that those who encounter it might actually counterintuitively perhaps find such witness less tethered to reality. Yeah, so I don't think the problem lies in the use of these technologies for conveying testimony. I think that the, the problem lies in the world of entertainment. The problem is that when you create stories that fictionalize the Holocaust that simply cannot and did not happen, when you have stories that are true, that are beyond belief, I think that feeds directly into deniers. I think it feeds directly into the fantasy world of atrocity. And Unfortunately, it's been done on the back of commercial organizations that are utilizing the Holocaust for commercial gain. So I think we need to start there. I think organizations like the Shoah Foundation have got a really important role to play here because what we're trying to do is actually use those technologies which are used for gaming and entertainment and so forth and harness them for the capture of authentic sites. Let me give you an example. I talked a little earlier about the virtual reality project the last goodbye. So we stand inside this barracks and Pincus is there telling the story of how he's separated from his father. And we film that in stereo so that we can see him 3D in that space. And then he leaves the building and goes to the next building with me and that crew. What we leave behind in the building is the photographers. And what they do is they take 10,000 photographs on the inside of that building. Because what we're going to do is we're going to reconstruct that building using absolutely super high definition, what they call photogrammetry. Photogrammetry is when you take thousands 
thousands of pictures and you stitch them together to create a photo real version, which is 360. And you can stand inside that reconstruction of that barracks. What we didn't realize was that because of our pursuit of authenticity, we actually created a snapshot of the Maidanic death camp. And in 2016, which is now in our preservation center, which that means when those barracks fall down of wood rot and disappear 50 years from now, we will know exactly what they were like down to the pixel. So it all comes down to what is authentic and how do you preserve what is authentic? And if you go back to that ethic that I started with and you run that through everything, you then got your North Star that enables you to say, when I take this Holocaust survivor and I use the technology of virtual reality, I am doing so and I'm harnessing that technology for the benefit of capturing authenticity, not recreating it for entertainment or some other form of representation. One final question. Before I went into academia, I directed the New England Holocaust Memorial in Boston. And I used to spend a fair amount of time bringing Holocaust survivors into classrooms or bringing them in front of audiences, or creating events that offered opportunities for people to hear Holocaust survivors tell their stories. The last time I heard a Holocaust survivor speak was for a class taught by uh, Professor Todd Presner, who's also been a guest on this podcast at UCLA. What I remember deeply is the attentive silence of the audience who hung onto every word of this survivor's testimony. But it wasn't just the words, I think, that they hung onto. For, for just the words, they could have listened to a, a, a recording, such as the thousands held by the Shoah Institute right across town from UCLA at USC. There was something else that they were hanging onto besides the words. And as I left that room, it dawned on me that it was the, what I call, iterability of the event, that it would only happen once, that the telling, that that specific telling was unique, that it would only be told exactly that way in that room to that audience in one particular way just at once. And it was the chance to be part of that singular event, I think, is what the students understood and that it wouldn't happen for that much longer, that this was a scarce resource, the opportunity to hear a Holocaust survivor speak live. I thought about that in preparing for this interview today and in watching the film based on the Project 116 cameras. I'm really astonished at the lifelike dimensions of these virtual testimonies, the way that those who appear as, for lack of a better term, holograms, seem almost real, but they're not real. <laughs> That's it. They're not real. At the UCLA event that I held on the new dimensions in Holocaust testimony, Eva Schloss's tape got stuck on her saying, maybe you should try to reboot. And she said that over and over again. And suddenly it dawned on me that these virtual Holocaust survivors will say that line or lines like that exactly that way in every single recording in perpetuity. Does the lifelikeness of these virtual witnesses get at what is so ultimately transfixing about being in the space where someone bears witness? Or is there some other property at stake for what it means to bear witness, one that can't be reproduced or even gotten close to by copying the form of that witness, however lifelike it might be? So I love this conversation. Feels like we in inhabit the same world, Deb, in terms of the questions that we're asking of ourselves, actually, as we do these projects. So let's talk about presence and embodiment. Presence is what you're referring to. The presence of the survivor in the room with the people creates this, this something that happens between human beings that is intangible, that's very difficult to actually put into words when you meet someone or encounter somebody in person, particularly somebody that represents the atrocity of the Holocaust and has survived that and has gone on to live their lives very often full and successful lives, sometimes not because of the trauma that goes with it. But largely speaking, it's that the presence of the individual and the encounter that you have with the living person just has a dimension to it that you simply cannot experience through any mediated form. And that's just what human beings are like. And then when you're gone, that's gone and it's not replaceable. So we won't be in the presence of Holocaust survivors 20, 30 years from now. It won't just won't happen. So this project, Dimensions and Testimony, was not intended to replace that. What it was intended to do was to give us more than just the video testimonies do, however. And that was to be able to create a, a form of engagement that is driven by curiosity, which allows us to then learn from them in ways that are pertinent to me as the learner, to personalize it on my part so that I can encounter 
them and learn from them as a subject based on the things that matter most to me. We did some evaluations of this and we discovered two things. Uh, the first is that those students that met Holocaust survivors in person had one type of experience and it was visceral and it was emotional and it was meaningful and it will stay with them for the rest of their lives. And those students that encountered the interactive version of the same Holocaust survivor had equally high levels of outcomes. But what they were able to do, interestingly, was they were able to ask deeper and more complex questions of the non-living version of the survivor and their levels of knowledge and their levels of engagement were higher than those that met the living person whose emotional state had a much greater sense of awareness of that individual. So they're different things for different purposes. In the future, the Holocaust survivors will not be here. We are not trying to replace them. We're just trying to make sure that they get the best chance to tell their story in the way that they would like to tell it in different forms of mediated engagement. But if I could just finish by saying one thing, because you, you just picked up on something that's really, of course, pressing for all of us, and that is Holocaust survivors will not be here for very much longer. And, you know, every month I send some eulogy somewhere or write to some family somewhere to you know, of friends, sometimes very dear friends that are now passing away. But I experienced something a couple of years ago that virtually none of our listeners yet will have experienced, but you will using this medium in due course. I was in Oxford. I was presenting at a large international conference and I was demonstrating dimensions in testimony in a little booth off the main conference hall when I got the news that a gentleman by the name of Aaron Elster had passed away. At that point, we had filmed 18 Holocaust survivors and Aaron was the first of them to pass away. The next morning, I went into my little booth and I had all of those 18 interviews on my computer and I brought up Aaron's video. And there he was in the room, life-size, the day after he had passed away. And so I hovered over the little touchpad. I just said, Aaron, what do you want your legacy to be? And he gave a very powerful answer about the fact that we don't have control over everything that happens in our life and that sometimes things work out great and sometimes it's terrible and we all experience all of that in our lives. But he would like young people to know that you can make a life out of even the worst situations and stick at it because it's really worth it. And I realized I was the first person that had started a conversation with somebody that was no longer alive. So I asked him another question and another question. And I kept his interview up for the next six hours as people came in and out of that booth and talked to Aaron Elster. He had not yet been buried. And I can't tell you how profound it is. I know for some of your listeners, this will sound very, very strange. You will experience it one day and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when you experience it. It is really, really profound. I uh, wrote to Aaron's family and I said, look, I'm really sorry, I can't get to Chicago for his funeral in England, but I want you to know that your dad had a really good day today and fulfilled what he always wanted to do, which was to continue to tell his story long after he's gone and may he always be a blessed memory. That is the power of memory in its new form. It'll take us a little while to get used to it, Deb, and it brings up all sorts of questions. But believe me, I'm struggling with those questions every single day, but I cannot tell you how pleased I was that day when I spent six hours with Aaron Elster and hundreds of people who were talking to him to have given him the chance to continue to tell his story after he was gone. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Deb. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>